Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. As China escalates tensions over Taiwan, many in Washington and the region question whether the nature of the competition between Beijing and the world has changed. Joining us to discuss the nature of that competition, how it's changing, is one of the nation's leading experts on China, Dr. Timothy Heath, a senior international defense researcher at the RAND Corporation, who before joining the federally funded think tank served as the senior analyst for uh, the US Pacific Command's China Strategy Focus Group. He has analyzed Chinese politics and the military for two decades and is fluent in Mandarin. He is also one of the authors, along with Kirsten Gunnis and Tristan Finazzo of the RAND book, The Return of Great Power War, Scenarios of Systemic Conflict Between the United States and China. This conversation is sponsored by General Atomics Aeronautical Systems and devoted to the memory of one of the nation's greatest national security strategists, Andy Marshall, the former director of the Pentagon's Office of Net Assessment. This strategy series is not affiliated with the Andrew W. Marshall Foundation. Tim, thanks so very much for joining us. Great to have you on the program. My pleasure. I'm happy to be here. Before we get started, Bell sponsors our daily podcast. Our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report, and Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics also sponsors our strategy coverage overall. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage, and we are a proud Farnborough International Airshow media partner, and our coverage of Britain's leading airshow was sponsored by Farnborough International and Leonardo DRS. Uh, Tim, thanks very much again uh, for joining us. Uh, the work tackles sort of four big questions uh, in the context of, of two uh, scenarios, a protracted low-intensity uh, global war uh, that then escalates into a high-intensity uh, conflict. And, and you guys characterize both as systemic war. Walk us through what systemic war means uh, in the context of the, of the two scenarios, especially given that you note that whether on the high or low side, it is going to end only when one or the other side concedes and acknowledges its subordination to the other, which is certainly how the Chinese view this, given uh, regime survival is at stake for them. Sort of walk us through these, the approach and how policymakers need to be thinking about where this competition is right now, because it's something that is moving from competition to something else that's potentially a lot more dangerous. Yes. So the idea of systemic warfare is the idea that uh, warfare spans all domains and around much of the world. And the reason why it, it takes that all-encompassing form is that the nature of the war, what it's fundamentally about, is about leadership of some kind of system, in this case, a global system. And there is a zero-sum quality to leadership. One person, one country can be a leader and the other cannot. And the impetus for this report was the simple observation that great power wars in the past have often been systemic wars. And uh, given where the US and Chinese are as number one and number two powers in the world, uh, there is good reason to believe that if they engage in war, it will not be something like what we experienced in Gulf War I, but uh, something that will resemble more like World War I, World War II, or the Cold War in some form. And that's what this report tries to describe. And, and talk to us about what uh, that low-intensity uh, war looks like. 
Uh, right. I mean, it's interesting you bring in the Cold War. I think there are a lot of people who see this as, you know, there could be a lot of proxy wars. I mean, indeed, the United States and its allies uh, are are fighting Russia uh, indirectly in, in Ukraine or depending on how Moscow looks at it directly. Um, walk us through what the low intensity part of it looks like uh, and then how that actually trans could could go into a high intensity war. And what that looks like, right? I mean, everybody sees uh, Taiwan as a trigger, but there could actually be, from your guys' perspective, a multiplicity of other triggers as well. Absolutely. So uh, low-intensity war, what is the point of it? So the point of the low-intensity war in our scenario is, is very much similar to the point of the indirect war that the U.S. and Soviets waged against each other in the Cold War. The point is to attrit and erode the capacity and will of your adversary to keep keep fighting. Now, uh, I think before we delve into what that looks like, we need to understand why in our scenario we think China would go down this path in the first place. And the most plausible reason for the Chinese to decide that the US must become inevitably and unavoidably an adversary is if they conclude the US is becoming a serious obstacle to China achieving its goals of national revival or the China dream through peacetime methods. Uh, so long as the Chinese believe they can achieve their goals through peace, peaceful methods, through economics, diplomacy, coercion, they are almost certainly going to prefer that path due to the fact that it's a lower risk. Uh, however, if they reach a point where they conclude the U.S competitive effort perhaps is so effective that it is stifling or strangling China's ability to achieve its goals through peaceful methods, then they could be incentivized to decide uh, there's no way around it. U.S. is an adversary. We must uh, attrit U.S. power to the point where it can no longer be a serious obstacle. And at that point, they could decide to move into a systemic war. The goal of the systemic war would be to, as I said, weaken U.S. power to the point uh, that the U.S. Uh, gives up its efforts to contain or stop China from achieving its revival and accepts a subordinate position uh, in the global order. In other words, it accepts a power transition in which China becomes the system leader and the U.S. adopts the secondary role. As we sketch it out, the systemic war would consist of efforts by China to support client states or militaries or armed groups around the world to fight and uh, impose costs on U.S. allies and partners and perhaps the U.S. itself. It would be waged indirectly and uh, the PLA would not be authorized to directly kinetically engage U.S. troops. Rather, they would be directed to advise and assist partners in, in engaging U.S. troops. And uh, they could engage the U.S. indirectly through cyberspace, perhaps through inf information warfare operations um, and through gray zone type operations where, where they could get much more aggressive, but they would still be very sensitive to the risk of escalation. Uh, I'll say why, you know, why this could be attractive is that in general, the, the risk of escalation is lower. There's, of course, given the fact these are two nuclear armed powers, the danger that uh, high intensity war could escalate to the most destructive levels. And the Chinese uh, certainly are, are sensitive to that danger and, and I think do not want to go there. So low intensity war allows 
to fighters, to countries to fight each other indirectly and try to bleed each other out in a way that that maintains a lower risk of uh, annihilation, frankly. Um, the drawback to low intensity war though is that it can often be inconclusive and drag on and on and on. And, uh, and either side could tire of the fact that this thing is just continuing to, to drag on and probably putting a drag on the global economy. And therefore, at some point, one side or the other may, may seek to resolve this more quickly by escalating. And this is a common tendency in great power transition wars. There's this illusion that the war can be won quickly and decisively with some new technology, new weapon, V2 rockets, nuclear bombs, well, which worked in that case, but uh, many other cases, gas, tanks, flamethrowers, uh, they don't, they rarely work. So, so when you're looking at this, right, I mean, there are those who argue that we've actually been in low intensity war for 15 years, uh, you know, former Marine Corps Commandant uh, General Neller would talk about that, that certainly in, in cyber and in space and in espionage, uh, we, we are uh, actually uh, have been at war, right, I mean, it was sort of like we were the only guys who didn't quite realize that. And then there are others that make the case uh, and Chip Gregson uh, uh, joined us last week on our uh, Washington roundtable and mentioned that he thinks that the Chinese have actually concluded in the wake of the Pelosi visit, right? And, and that was a convenient trigger. There would have been another trigger uh, for it, but that the Chinese have actually decided that actually Taiwan is, is going to get resolved by force. Uh, and and not uh, through peaceful uh, means. Um, the United States has Tim, as as you know, sitting in PACOM, right? The, the um, Obama administration said, we we understand China is the rising power, and we want to work with China in the rules based order, uh, right? I mean, I think the biggest concern is is not China's rising; it's that China is rising in a way that it seeks to rewrite some of these global uh, rules. Uh, you know, making the case. I wasn't party to their creation, and and so they 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 don't necessarily apply to me. You know, have we been at war, uh, actually, in low intensity war in in some of these domains already? And has China, in your from your standpoint, made an intellectual transition toward this sort of more systemic war approach, or or even a different approach that goes actually beyond, uh, yeah. you know, Taiwan, right? So I, I, I think the phenomena of gray zone does make this judgment uh, complicated. Uh, you know, f- without question, we are competing with China and have been for over a decade. Um, but I think an important distinction has to be made between low intensity war and, and a competition of all shades up, in, up to and including gray zone. I think that the crucial uh, distinction I would make is when there's a decision by the governments of the US and China to carry out hostile acts against the other that, that they accept could result in casualties and deaths of the armed forces of the other, and, and they willingly engage in that activity, then we've crossed the threshold into low intensity war. And by that, and by that standard, the US and Soviets entered that uh, early in the Cold War, and they did carry out uh, hostile acts against each other indirectly, but nevertheless, they did kill each other uh, indirectly. 
U.S. and Chinese governments have not yet crossed that threshold. So I would argue we have not entered this uh, phase of systemic war. The U.S. and Chinese governments have designated each other a threat and a competitor, but they are uh, they are restraining themselves. Uh, as, as far as we publicly know, there's no evidence that either side has authorized its troops or any of its security forces to um, to kill uh, in an aggressive manner um, troops of the other side. It could go head that way, but we're not there yet. Um, I was going to add that I think that the thing that would make the Chinese move in that direction is what I mentioned earlier. When the Chinese decide they're one, strong enough to uh, actually contend with the U.S. in this manner, they might may consider it. And then two, if they judge the U.S. Is, has become such an obstacle to their ability to achieve their goals that there's no way around peace, peaceful methods, the, the peaceful methods have failed and there's no way around fighting the U.S., then they may be uh, willing to initiate a uh, low intensity war. But right now, the Chinese, by their own accounts, are too weak, too, too uh, encumbered with economic difficulties and political difficulties. They're, they're just not well postured to carry out something like this. And, um, and they are actually more interested, I think, in trying to find a way to stabilize the situation rather than escalate into conflict. You guys have a whole series of, of uh, policy uh, recommendations, right? So how, what are some of the things that U.S. policy and allied policymakers uh, should, be, should be doing to um, continue to deter uh, the Chinese, right? I mean, the whole um, mission uh, of the Indo-Pacific Command and, and indeed, you know, every American administration has been, what are the things that we can do uh, to uh, prevent this eventuality? We're spending more money, we're buying more, right? We're redirecting the capabilities uh, aimed at complicating life uh, for the Chinese uh, in many cases, right? More investment in long-range missilery. On the other hand, right, the concern folks have is, we're not moving quickly enough, right? It's great right. to have 450 LRASMs by 2026, but that's sort of an afternoon's worth of work to stop, for example, a Chinese amphibious invasion or to help contribute to stopping an amphibious invasion, for example, of Taiwan. What right. are some of the specific things that the administration, Congress, the diplomatic system in the whole, because you guys look at all of these elements in, in the report, what are the things that have to happen in order to keep this this, these, either of these low intensity or high intensity eventualities off the table or, or to convince the Chinese they just don't want to take that. Uh, yes. Down those well, I think that's the key is um, persuading the Chinese that the risk and cost of crossing that threshold of, of directing their forces to kinetically engage U.S. forces simply isn't worth it is really essential. And there's several parts to that. First, building up U.S power, maintaining an advantage to such an extent that the Chinese become discouraged that they can never catch up and really contend as a peer is, is essential. That's what happened in the Soviet case. The Soviets gave up eventually when they realized they just could not catch up to the U.S. and the U.S. was just so far advantaged in, in many domains. Um, it wasn't worth it for them to pursue this rivalry. Similarly, the U.S., it is essential to to you know, have sound economic growth, continue to build our technological advantage and maintain a, a, a balanced approach to the competition. Too, too much of an emphasis on military hardware isn't necessarily the best strategy. It's what we need to do is maintain our competitive edge. So that's one. 
Second, um, getting at China's incentive. So if, if the key is to um, uh, discourage the Chinese from thinking that hostilities is the only way they can achieve their goals, then I, I think it remains important for the U.S. to maintain a balance of deterring the Chinese by showing them that military options are, are too risky and too dangerous. And that includes uh, all the investments to build our deterrence capability in the Pacific regarding Taiwan and, and other contingencies, but also still maintaining uh, an open hand to working with the Chinese and helping them to the extent we have shared common interests uh, to achieve goals through peaceful methods. The U.S. should be clear in, in articulating what is the peaceful approach for the Chinese to achieve goals that the U.S. does not fundamentally oppose, like economic growth, infrastructure investment, things like that. Um, finding, maintaining that balance to get at the incentive will be important as well. Do you, um, you know, there there is a concern um, that, you know, obviously the Chinese have a tendency of responding to U.S. actions. On the other hand, they've also built their own nationalistic narrative uh, in, in which, right, I mean, you, you've got to sell the Chinese people on this. And authoritarian regimes uh, have, you know, build up these myths, um, whether around Taiwan, whether about the China dream, uh, all of these Western powers were keeping us down. We're throwing those shackles off. And for five millennia, you know, China has been China and um, we're, we're going to retake our place. I mean, and that manifests itself with some of the language Chinese diplomats use, right? Japan used to be China. Korea used to be China. Well, I suppose if you go back far enough, maybe, but these you know, maybe 2,600 years is a little bit older than the, the, the sort of the conventional schema. <laughs> uh, modern nations have a tendency of using it, right? I mean, South China Sea is all ours anyway, because everything around here used to be ours at some point. Um, one of the things that authoritarian leaderships can also do is that they miscalculate, um, right? I mean, what are, what are some of the nuances of standing up, right? I thought it was interesting that in the wake of sort of China's temper tantrum over Taiwan, um, you know, the United States did sail a battle group through the Taiwan Strait to underscore that, okay, now that you're done, we're going back to, you know, uh, 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 you know, living by the rules, uh, the international rules. Right. What's, what's that balance from, from your standpoint of not being too hot, not being too cold in, yeah, in terms no, of the long-term deterrent game? Yes, uh, it, it is a balance and it is, uh, it takes a lot of nuance. To address first issue of nationalism, it is a force in China. It is a card the Chinese government does play. But I, I do think it's worth emphasizing that China today is not Japan of the 30s. There is not a, a massive movement among the youth to, to join a militaristic effort to revive China's glory. The PLA has an extremely difficult time recruiting young people. People just don't want to serve in the PLA. Uh, they, they still resort to conscription, even though they don't want to. And they, they have uh, growing numbers of young people who simply refuse to serve when conscripted. So um, it is a card the Chinese government plays. I, I do worry about uh, the possibility of a miscalculation, but I, I, I'm less concerned that the, the Chinese are going to follow the path of like imperialist Japan or, or Germany. Much more likely, I think, is a misjudgment where the Chinese, in an effort to rally domestic support, try to intimidate Taiwan with these new types of coercive uh, blockade type maneuvers 
the U.S. challenges the Chinese and the Chinese government is not well prepared for, um, you know, a, a situation with U.S. military warships are sailing through and testing the credibility of the PLA. I think that what would likely happen is you'd have a, a serious crisis, probably would de-escalate, but the outcome of that crisis would put the two countries definitely uh, on a path to a higher likelihood of a collision down the road. And the, the, this is a typical pattern in these great power systemic conflicts is you have a series of intractable militarized crises that elevate the temperature, intensify the threat perceptions and mobilize populations to uh, view each other as uh, enemies. Let me ask you about regime stability, right? Our sense of the Chinese regime is that it's, it's stable. Um, but it is an authoritarian one that's getting increasingly rest restrictive with its population. Uh, the COVID uh, crackdowns have not been uh, popular. Um, the financial scandals uh, suggest that the country is not exactly uh, an, on as good financial footing, right? And the compact here uh, has become, at least the modern compact is, um, you know, we're going to make good decisions as a government. We control all power. We give you economic growth. And uh, you, you don't need freedom in, you know, you don't necessarily need democracy uh, in that case. And then again, as, 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 as you mentioned, right, you overlay sort of a nationalistic component uh, to that. Um, so actually, the more unstable China gets, actually, the order of magnitude more dangerous it gets, right? I mean, that's when authoritarian states do lash out, look for the external uh, enemy. And, and, and threat. Putin did that in, in Ukraine when he was facing demonstrations uh, in, in Moscow, right? The Maidan sort of spreading to Moscow. Um, yeah. How stable in your estimation uh, is the Chinese government? And are, do we need to be somewhat more aware that they might not be as stable? And so that actually makes them more dangerous, right? How do we need to think about this in sort of the near, mid, long term? Because certainly the, the Chinese message is of an all-powerful you know, economy that's global and we will not be stopped. And actually it has a whole series of vulnerabilities that they themselves are going to have a hard time addressing. And we're contributing to those hardships, right? Whether through technological constraint yeah. and the United States is very effectively stepping up to the table with its allies and partners, just not just in Europe and Asia. How do we need to see this to calculate the right outcome from your perspective? Yes, a uh, very good question. There's, uh, in my view, no question that this is a regime that is under intense pressure. Um, they, the Chinese differ from the Russians in that they do have this broader strategic vision and ambition of national revival that they are trying to move towards. I think that does impose a lot of restraint because they're worried that a miscalculation or a reckless you know, Russian war could totally destroy that hope, something they've been working towards for decades. It's, it's not a vision that Russians have. That it's, in Russia, it's all about Putin and what he wants. It's a little bit different in China. They have a little more of an institutionalized uh, political process, ideal vision, strategy. Um, but the issue they're running into is that, that they are finding it harder and harder to get there as our economy falters, as uh, the, the population becomes more and more discontent, um, there is a danger, I think, that the government becomes more unpredictable. Uh, but I, I do want to highlight that this is an issue that doesn't just affect the Chinese. Governments around the world are experiencing serious problems of legitimacy, uh, to include our own. Uh, when we have serious challenges in uh, ensuring 
stability and uh, making sure that people are content and the Chinese are grappling with that as well. It is possible that in coming years, uh, not just China, but the U.S. decision-making will become more erratic and unpredictable. We've seen glimpses of that in the recent past, unfortunately, scarily. And, and so I worry that down the road, it, it could be an interaction between um, unpredictable decision-making in both China and the U.S. that results in, in a crisis that, again, starts us down this path of increasing uh, risk of more of a systemic conflict. Um, one of the things I, I want to try to get to this because you guys also look at sort of four important questions, right? So how would China's security goals change um, if it engaged, you know, decides to engage in systemic conflict with America? What that shift would mean for uh, the military in terms of its operations and modernization, um, how the conflict might unfold, uh, and and what you guys term as sort of distinctive Chinese features that either enable or in, impede its war fighting. Uh, mm. or its abilities to wage such a sy systemic war. Kind of walk us through those four questions and what each of these changes potentially means, right? Because it's it's an ability to envision that mid to near to long future that is critical if, if policymakers, right? I mean, because we have this sense of our own technological superiority. There are some things they're doing that are problematic to us. And we're now actually realizing, wow, some of their capabilities might actually be somewhat more problematic than we originally thought, right? Yeah. How do we need to, to think about the space and those four questions uh, if, if we're going to uh, get, uh, as Andy Marshall would say, right? I mean, you ask the right question, you have to ask the right question. If you don't ask the right question, you're going to end up with the wrong answer. Well, a lot of the analysis about conflict with China starts from current day assumptions in which the U.S. frankly has a lot of the cards in its favor and has huge military advantages and, and uh, geopolitical advantages. And what we do in our report is point out that as long as the U.S. has all these advantages, the incentive for China to engage in a war with the U.S. is extremely low. Uh, I mean, it's, it's like if you... If you have such a disadvantage, why would you provoke a war with you know a guy who's who's got so many more power, uh, weapons, uh, friends than you? However, if you imagine a situation years from now, and there's no guarantee this will work in this direction, we're not predicting this will happen. We're just pointing out it is a possibility that the Chinese overcome some of their current economic difficulties. They succeeded in building a network of client states and partners and BRI routes. And the appeal of U.S. power declines dramatically. If you imagine a future, you know, a couple decades, maybe a decade or two from now, where uh, the two powers are much more closer in, in their actual national strength. And the PLA is strong, is, is a contender with the U.S. as a premier world power, certainly at least in the Indo-Pacific. And the U.S. has lost a lot of its friends or people have, have become frustrated for whatever reason. And maybe they're become neutral or gravitated towards China. Um, and then the then the whole war picture looks dramatically different. The hardships on the U.S. will be uh, much more severe. The Chinese will be in a better position to risk something. I think even in that situation, the Chinese would prefer to rely on indirect means of conflict. Their military is not that well tested. I think there is deep apprehension in China in engaging in a, in a high intensity war with a global superpower like the US, which has decades of war fighting experience. 
Um, and the Chinese have been impressed with the ability of low, low cost technologies like missiles uh, to wreak havoc on advanced militaries like the US and others. So there, there are a lot of reasons for the Chinese to think of ways in, in this, you know, if this future ever came to pass to favor more indirect means of fighting. And also there's a big political dimension to this. This is very Chinese. The Chinese want to demonstrate to the world, to themselves, uh, that they are superior to the US. Um, uh, you know, again, this is also part of great power competition. There is always this technological and political component of demonstrating superiority. So it would be in the Chinese interest to try to preserve some of their more advanced platforms uh, like their carriers and stealth aircraft and to find ways to destroy US advanced platforms uh, as a way of, of making a political point. Again, I think this, this favors indirect long range strike, uh, indirect methods, cyber and long range strike and uh, other weapons that don't necessarily involve joint maneuvers. It's, it's about finding ways to uh, strike U.S. forces that cause immense damage and uh, and bleed resources at lower cost for China. Um, anyhow, that's that's a quick summary of some of the some of the points that, do, that those questions. Do you um, you know you, you've you've sort of said a couple of times right sort of ten years as a window. Um, there was a lot of debate as as you know how large the window is. Uh, I remember asking this question of uh, Army Chief of Staff General McConville um, a couple of years ago, and he said, look, and he looked at the window actually as a two-year window, that if we start to do the right things within the next two years, it's going to actually send an amplified deterrent signal. Uh, we've heard from Phil Davidson, um, the former Indo-Pacific commander, you know, and he did given a five-year window, and there's a concern that 2027 could be a key date because it's the centenary uh, of the People's uh, Liberation Army. Um, for what what it, should we be thinking about? Is it constructive to think about a date window at all? Or do we need to think about this, which I think is what you're suggesting? It's a long continuum, and it's not a necessarily as time-based as it is actions-based, whether on technology, whether on diplomacy, whether on engagement, whether on hard capability, right? Mm -hmm. Is there a date box? Um, I am in general skeptical of dates as a way to view this situation. Really what matters is the relative balance of power between the US and Chinese and the motivation of the Chinese in terms of, do they still believe they can achieve their goals peacefully or have they given up on peaceful methods? That is what we should pay attention to. So in the coming years, it could be five years, it could be 10 years, it could be 20 years. We need to pay attention to the fact uh, to whether the Chinese are fixing their economy and do they seem to be getting their BRI you know, ambitions uh, down, in which case their national power will probably grow stronger and stronger. Is the U.S. managing its situation well, or are we are we fumbling and becoming weaker and weaker? In which case, we we will we will move either quickly or more slowly towards this point of parity. In which, once we come closer to that point, that's when the incentive for war, I think, for China increases dramatically, especially if they feel that the U.S. is still an obstacle and their motivation. Uh, uh, you know, their, their willingness to consider more hostile ways to break U.S. powers and impediment could grow. So it's it's the balance of power I would pay attention to more than specific dates. 
But I mean, you could argue that the Chinese themselves have made things worse for them, right? I mean, the wolf warrior diplomacy, uh, the overt actions, uh, the rhetoric is actually what's propelled uh, the last three administrations uh, to take this more seriously, right? Always saying that, you know, we look forward to being a constructive partner, whether it's on climate or solving global problems, but that we are going to be standing up to you uh, in order to preserve the rules, rules-based order, right? How, yeah. how much of this is stuff that we're doing? How much, you know, because I mean, I'm one of the people I think who thinks that if the Chinese had actually played this cooler, they, they could have actually won without fighting uh, because they would have maybe delivered kind of a fait accompli because, right, our system doesn't want to move unless it's forced to move, right? Um, and, and we whistled past a whole variety of Chinese graveyards for a while until, you know, some specific capabilities and instances, some of which you were at Paycom for were sort of wake-up moments for us, right? Um, sure. Well, I mean, how, I, how much of this is us and how much of this is is them? Because authoritarian leaders regularly miscalculate, right? History has sort of proven that. Yes, but we have to bear in mind that the Chinese um, have been very offensive in their politics for decades. And Mao Zedong was, you know, the, the invective he hurled at the U.S. was... Daily, it was just on a totally different level than we're experiencing today, and yet we made peace with Mao, well, at least his successors, and and uh, normalized relations with China because it was in our strategic interest, and because China was so weak back then. What has changed is their their national strength. So their politics has has I think in many ways certainly it's changed under Xi Jinping, become much more aggressive, but. There is a lot of continuity. What has changed is is their you know their national strength. In 2010, China surpassed Japan to become the second largest economy in the world, and what they required to keep growing increasingly encroached on core national U.S. strengths, such as competition in advanced manufacturing and advanced technology, um, and and their role as a key trade partner for all of our allies in Asia and for many countries in the world also started to impact our access to markets. So there was, there was a growing economic competition that added to tensions. Uh, the political competition was always there and intensified as the Chinese tried to woo partners and demonstrate that China was a superior partner in part by denigrating the US and that's intensified for sure. And then militarily, the Chinese also tried to uh, either intimidate countries in Asia and to stop supporting their alliance with the U.S. and instead defer to China with, with muscle flexing and demonstrations of strength and roll out of more and more A2A2, sorry, anti-access area denial weaponry uh, that was partly aimed at discrediting the U.S. as a, as a partner. All of that added to the tensions. I, I think this is what the study is highlighting is that the differences between the U.S. and China are systemic. It is not about wolf warrior diplomacy or, or a single Chinese leader and if you got rid of him, put someone in, things would be kosher. No, there are structural differences. That here's a good quote: Senior diplomat Fu Ying, Chinese uh, senior diplomat, said, "The U.S.-led order is like a suit that no longer fits China." What she was getting at is, the U.S. as a status quo power benefits from the way things are set up, but it doesn't necessarily benefit China. And and so China believes that a lot of things need to change in order to benefit China, and and they don't. They don't really care if it doesn't benefit the U.S. This is the fundamental issue between the two countries. For now, this structural set of differences is being worked out peacefully, but there is the possibility down the road 
that the Chinese become frustrated uh, and decide that more aggressive measures are needed to resolve these intractable differences. Let me um, take you, you know, you mentioned um, allies uh, and partners and uh, Washington always likes to remind everybody uh, that, you know, one of the great advantages we have is we, we have a, a wide variety of allies and partners. China has been working globally to try to fracture some of those alliances. Uh, and despite what China has been doing, the United States has been doing, I think, a pretty effective job uh, in Europe where a lot more European countries have concluded um, this business model cannot continue um, looking at China both as a market and as a competitor, right? Something's got to change. So it's very interesting when you're hearing uh, Germans and French, French in, in, in particular, but Brits as well, looking and saying, look, th this has to change. Um, it's problematic. Uh, the country is going to be problematic from a global security standpoint. At the same time, we talk about our allies and partners in the Asia Pacific, and yet in War Games, Tim, it, it ends up that it's the United States and Japan, and a lot of other people tend to stay on the sidelines uh, of it. Um, uh, I mean, I, I think it was interesting that South Korea didn't condemn Chinese missiles flying over Taiwan uh, in in the, the the latest demonstration by the by the Chinese. Right. How do we need? How does the how does Washington need to look at allies and partners around the world? Uh, because you could argue we're not, none of us, even though I think Anthony Blinken, the Secretary of State, did launch a new Africa initiative and tried to coordinate that with our allies and partners. Africans are sort of like, okay, I mean, sure, but where's 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 the bacon, right? Where's where's the beef? Uh, not not to use the old Wendy's commercial, right? Right. How how do we how do we need to think about Europe, Africa, uh, Latin America, and are our alliance structures actually as robust as we want to imagine them, especially in the Asia Pacific, where the closer you get to China, even Vietnam has a tendency of sort of being cautious, right? Sure. And for good so, reason. Um, yeah. So a common phenomena in these great power rivalries is for the region or the world to, to experience a polarization. Uh, and countries start gravitating to to rivals in hopes partly of gaining some sort of benefit by aligning themselves with one side or the other. But another thing that tends to happen is that a lot of countries start to um, become much more ambivalent and unsure about which side they want to join because it's not clear, uh, you know, which side will prevail or they're hoping to uh, play both sides and reap some benefits. We are experiencing both. Uh, I think patterns look at the look at the quad as an example of polarization where India's own antagonism with China is leading it to cooperate with the US to a certain extent. Australia, Japan have, have definitely deepened their relations. Taiwan is gravitating towards the US camp to the much, much of the frustration of the Chinese. But at the same time, we are seeing other US allies become more ambivalent and unsure and um, more willing to play both sides, fence it, and, and maybe even consider offers from China. Philippines, Thailand are our two U.S. allies who definitely have become much more ambivalent in recent years. So, uh, and I would add that this is a trend we should expect to intensify as, um, as China and the U.S. become closer and closer to equal in power. As the Chinese gain in strength, it is very likely that they will gain more followers and supporters. You mentioned Africa. Africa, actually, China has a very, very good 
reputation there and a lot of friends probably you know, very competitive with the U.S. If not in many ways, they're are viewed more favorably than the U.S. in large parts of Africa, uh, other parts of the developing world, which I might add is the focus of Chinese uh, diplomatic efforts. They believe that they can build a network of clients and supporting states in the developing world. They understand that Europe is going to support the U.S. They don't expect any different. And the Chinese analysis, Europe and the U.S. benefit from the status quo, and therefore they can be expected to fight hard to keep things as they are. Whereas China believes a lot of the developing world resents the U.S. and Europe and may gr gravitate towards Chinese support in their efforts to revamp and restructure uh, a lot of the international order. I, I want to take you to uh, domestic American politics, right? I mean, you, you mentioned, uh, you know, what disruption, uh, political, societal, Soviet Union was very, very effective uh, at mobilizing it, right? I mean, we saw after the war how the KGB was actively, actively involved in uh, whether it was the Vietnam protest movements or uh, the anti-nuclear arms uh, movements uh, at the end of the day, not taking anything away from the concerns that average Americans had with both of those wars, right? But you could realize that the Soviet Union had an interest in weakening uh, the United States in a long-term proxy uh, battle. Um, we've seen U.S. polling that suggests Americans are overwhelmingly supportive of Taiwan uh, as a democracy and, and believe that Washington should do everything it can to actually help Taiwan defend itself. Where things are a little bit different and where the, I'm sure it lifts Chinese uh, hearts is that some of these surveys also suggest that Americans are not comfortable with large numbers of Americans dying for Taiwan. And yet every war game that I've ever observed, uh, a lot of Americans die and aircraft carriers are almost consistently sunk. Uh, and that's a bad afternoon that costs thousands of American lives in an, in an afternoon. Uh, it is far worse for the Chinese at the end of the day, uh, because in most of these games, the Chinese end up losing. Um, are there things that U.S. political leaders, Tim, need to be doing now to sort of prepare the American people for these kinds of eventualities? Because even the low-grade war, we may be losing Americans right in a low-intensity war, but like Americans yes. would be dying sort of on a regular basis in proxy wars uh, around the world, much less sort of the big game where... I mean, thousands of people could be dying in an afternoon, right? Which, sure. which or, makes or it more. Sort of it really escalates for sure. Yeah, no. Um, so it is true. I think there is ambivalence in the U.S. about how much skin in the game Americans are willing to put in the contests with China. It is striking that China is one of the few bipartisan issues that, that our leaders do seem to agree a lot on. Uh, in, in the sense of there's consensus in GOP and Democratic parties uh, in strengthening U.S. military and whole government competitive capabilities and rebuilding our industrial base. But as you point out, Americans in general are reluctant to support uh, huge numbers of troops fighting and potentially dying against China. I, I think this... This is going to definitely affect how we conduct. It's another incentive to for both sides to con conduct a low intensity war where the casualty count will be lower. Uh, I, you know, as an aside, I think the Chinese have similar sensitivities. It is easy to, to dismiss, as many people do, the idea that the Chinese government is concerned about casualties in the military because it's an authoritarian regime. 
yes, it's an authoritarian regime, but uh, all the Chinese behavior we've seen to date in their operations abroad um, shows that the people get upset when Chinese are killed and when Chinese soldiers die. Uh, it's a very sensitive subject. Look at the brawl with India. Uh, just happened two years ago. The Chinese government still has made it a state secret how many people died. It's not something they want to broadcast because they know it, it doesn't reflect well on the government. So I think uh, there is a sensitivity in China that we should be uh, aware of, as there is in the U.S. This adds an incentive for both sides to keep the competition peaceful, or if it, if it shifts into conflict, I think both sides would be motivated to try a low-intensity proxy uh, approach first, um, but yes, if it escalates to high intensity of war, it's it's difficult. I think for me to imagine how the U.S. population will respond to that. Uh, you know, I wish I wish I could say that I think the Americans would rally like we did at World War II with Pearl Harbor, but but the recent political developments, the intense polarization, makes me unsure. I, I think there's a equal likelihood that uh, what would happen is a lot of finger pointing, a lot of political acrimony and, and intensification of our own political conflict and social conflict, which the Chinese could exploit. Um, but similarly, Chinese could have severe divisions and weaknesses domestically that, that are make them vulnerable too. So, you know, I, I'm concerned that an escalation of high intensity war would, would exacerbate domestic stability issues in both US and China, uh, and not to mention the economic uh, instability that the high intensity war would bring and, and further inflame the situation, not just in our countries, but really much of the world. Let me ask you uh, one, one last uh, question uh, in terms of uh, both winning over allies and partners, but also sort of to sum up sort of the key to long-term deterrence. Yes. So uh, first I'll say that, you know, at the end of the day, if you had a bet on a winning horse, the U.S., for all its weaknesses, does seem to be in a much stronger position. I want to emphasize that our study does not predict that Chinese will reach a point of parity and therefore will engage in a war with the U.S. We are laying out hypothetical cases in which the Chinese somehow overcome a lot of their severe weaknesses and uh, become a much stronger competitor. So uh, given current trends, there's, there's a good reason to believe the US will maintain a pretty strong advantage, but by no means guaranteed. Uh, and it will require a lot of, the US I think is gonna to have to work a lot harder at maintaining its advantage over the Chinese than we had to against the Soviets who are really a way weaker opponent uh, in many ways economically. They, they just didn't compare. And technologically, they're far behind the US. They had a lot of nukes and a, a massive ground force, but that was about it. Um, the Chinese are gonna be much more formidable competitors, even if they continue to grapple with weaknesses. Um, it will be important for US allies and partners to, to help contribute given America's limitations uh, and our resources. Like everybody else, we have our resource limitations. Um, and we will need the help of our allies and partners to contribute, to, especially to help project an image of deterrence. The more the Chinese see the U.S. has the support of powerful countries around the world, the, the more risky it becomes for the Chinese to ever consider going down the path of directly challenging the U.S. And that's where we want them to be. We want them to stay in a, in a path where they decide, given uh, the 
dangers of trying to challenge the U.S. directly in, in the military conflict, it is simply best for China to maintain a peaceful path and, and to try to achieve its goals peacefully. And that will require the work of our allies and partners. It will require the work of our leaders, uh, ensuring domestic strength, industrial strength, economic strength, um, and, uh, and military strength and deterrence. Um, and a sustained effort that's probably going to last many years. Tim, thanks so very much for joining us. Uh, uh, great to have you on the program. Um, I, I commend the work and for folks to check it out because it is very thoughtful and very nuanced. Uh, so congratulations to you and your uh, team and look forward to having your voice on the program uh, in the future. Thanks so much for making so much time uh, for us today. All right, my pleasure. Thanks for having me.